Exodus chapter 35. The topic we're going to tackle this morning, Israel gets to work and finishes building the tabernacle where they would enjoy worshiping God. The title of our message, Worship While You Work. (laughs) Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to gather here, as Nick said earlier, and, and worship you and sing praises to you, lift our hearts together in a chorus of praise received by you as uh, sweet incense before your throne. Now we have your word open before us, and there are some things that you want to teach us. You want to talk to us between the soul and the spirit in the deepest part of our hearts. I pray that we would see Jesus reflected in this word and that we would be transformed today more into his image, knowing that one day we will awake in his likeness. Thank you for the work you're doing in our hearts and lives. And thank you for the promise that you will indeed complete it. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would strive with them, convict them of sin and righteousness and of the judgment to come so that they would enter into this wonderful family of believers. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. In 1986, Tom Bodette ad-libbed the line, we'll leave the light on for you, while in the recording studio for the first time And the Motel 6 slogan was both an instant and lasting success. The phrase captures a sense of true hospitality for the weary road warrior. Says Baudet, I think we'll leave the light on works because it is one of those spontaneous and practical things we say to each other all the time. In Exodus, God tells the Israelites to leave their lights off. In chapter 35, verse 3, we read, You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. There was, however, a light that was always kept on. In Leviticus chapter 24, command the children of Israel that they bring uh, bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps of the menorah burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Furthermore, God's presence as a bright pillar of fire by night dwelt within the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites weren't in the dark on the Sabbath. God left the light on for them. It was a special day for a precious people to be reminded whose they were. As the book of Exodus goes from instruction about the tabernacle to its construction, We want to point out the special, precious relationship God intended for Israel and, of course, the one that he intends for us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the instruction for the tabernacle reminds you that you are God's workmanship. And number two, the construction of the tabernacle reminds you that you are God's work fellows. Let's take a look at the instruction and our workmanship beginning in chapter 35. Now, The next five chapters, chapters 35 through 39, present a special challenge to Bible teachers and pastors. They describe the building of the tabernacle, but they are basically a verbatim repeat of the material presented already in chapters 25 through 31. The repetition is thematically necessary because it shows that the Israelites obeyed God to the letter. It also emphasizes just how important this structure was in the ongoing plan of redemption. But having said that, our commentary would be repeating what we've already said. It's therefore not unheard of to skip over this section 
Warren Wiersbe, for example, in his book, Through the Word, takes all five chapters at once uh, and just summarizes them. I think the best way to approach these chapters is to look at them as a unit, commenting on what we haven't already commented on in chapters 25 through 31. And so we're going to move quickly through them. Uh, sections that we've already talked about, we're not going to talk about. And so Exodus 35, verse 1, then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, these are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Now, I said I wanted to focus on the special, precious relationship God intended for the Israelites, and this gathering is a good place to start. God had previously offered himself in a covenant relationship with Israel. He would be their God and dwell among them. They would be his people, obey him, and realize his blessing. In chapters 20 through 23, God laid out that covenant. Chapter 24, the Israelites eagerly agreed to God's covenant. And then from chapters 25 through 31, God instructed Moses on Mount Sinai about the tabernacle, and he gave him the Ten Commandments. Sadly, while God was talking to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Israelites grew impatient. They demanded that Aaron make them a god. He all too willingly complied, making a golden calf from their donated jewelry. As Moses descended Mount Sinai after 40 days, the Israelites were fully involved in idol worship in a drunken orgy. Chapters 32 through 34 then chronicle Moses' intercession for the people and their repentance. In an emotional meeting, God said he would keep his promises to Israel with regard to conquering the promised land, but that he would no longer accompany them there and he would not dwell among them once they settled there. Moses, representing Israel, refused to let God withdraw. He set up his own makeshift tent of meeting, urging God to manifest himself. God did manifest himself, and then he relented and he agreed to go with them. He would indeed dwell among them and be their God. As chapter 35 opens, it's as if nothing terrible had happened. The story picks up just as if the incident with the golden calf had never occurred. The opening verse then is full of the grace of God. It's an example of where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Sin couldn't abound any more than with these people. And yet God now forgave them and is going to go forward with them as if nothing happened. We should never think lightly of sin because we're promised grace. But when we do sin, that promised grace can overflow us as we confess our sin. You know, it's, it's hard sometimes for Christians to embrace grace when somebody has sinned and then they are genuinely repentant. Part of us thinks they should pay for it. Part of us thinks that they need to do some penance. And, and, and we're, we're a little bit hesitant to just really forgive people who ask for forgiveness uh, without some kind of a, a program. And, and yet God forgives his people. And you know who else he forgives? You. And he doesn't really call upon you to do penance because your forgiveness is based on what Jesus did on the cross, not what you could ever do to earn it. Are you involved in some sin? Maybe it's still in the planning stages. Maybe it's in your heart. Confess, repent, let grace lead you back to where you ought to be. Verse two, work shall be done for six days, but seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. 
I'm not going to spend tons of time explaining again why Gentiles were never and are not today obligated to observe the Sabbath day or the Sabbath years or the year of Jubilee. And by the way, when you talk about keeping the Sabbath, you should realize this by now, it isn't just the weekly Sabbath that Israel was to keep. They had uh, Sabbath years at the end of every seven years and at the end of every 49, every 50th year was a year of Jubilee. And so if you want to keep the Sabbath, whatever that means, you got to be all in. You, you can't just pick and choose what Sabbath you're talking about. For our purposes today, though, I, I want to remind us of one crucial teaching God gave us on the subject, and you'll see why in a moment. This is from back in Exodus 31, verses 13, 16, 17. The Lord says, speak to the children of Israel, saying, my Sabbaths you shall keep. It is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. The Sabbaths are a special arrangement between God and the nation of Israel. Listen to how this same thing is described by the prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 20, he says, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which as a man does them, he shall live by them. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Who did God lead out of Egypt into the wilderness? Israel. To whom did God give his statutes and judgments? Israel. To who then did God give his Sabbaths to observe? Israel. No one on the earth was observing the Sabbath until God made it a sign between himself and Israel. God never intended anyone else other than Israel to be observing them. And you know what? This was something special to communicate to Israel how precious they were to their God. They alone in the world, among all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, were given rest by their gracious and merciful God. As I pointed out, the weekly Sabbath wasn't the only Sabbath. Every year after seven years was a Sabbath year when fields were to lie fallow and no planting or harvesting was done. Every 50th year was jubilee. Debts were forgiven and properties reverted back to their original owners. Imagine what an amazing testimony this could have been to the other peoples of the earth. First of all, just visiting Israel, and all of a sudden, everything shuts down on Friday at sundown. What are you people doing? We're resting. Uh, we're not, we don't even cook. We don't kindle a fire. We just hang out for this chillaxing time of rest. Okay, I can see that. What if you visited in the seventh year, in the Sabbath year? Hey, you guys aren't planting any crops? You're not plowing your fields? You're not gathering? No. What are you doing? We're meeting at donut country every morning and having donuts like the other farmers. That's what farmers do around here, right? Yeah. What do you mean you have a year off? Yeah. Imagine the, the faith that you had to have to take a year off of your, your crops and the faithfulness of God to provide abundantly for you before and after that, this would be mind-blowing to the other nomadic agricultural cultures around that. And then if you were to join them in the, Sabbath, in the Jubilee year, I mean, this is far beyond the Renaissance Fair in terms of its excitement. 
How many of you been to the Ren Fair? You willing to admit it? <laughs> I've driven by there. Anyway, I mean, you know, then you have a whole year going on of, of celebration. Nothing like this had ever happened. And you know what? God never intended it for happen until he called his special people, Israel, and said, I want to show people what a theocracy looks like. I want to show the world, the governors and governments of the world, what it means to be ruled by God. And they're going to love it. Now, sadly, the Israelites didn't have faith in God. They wouldn't let their land lie fallow. And finally, it caught up to them when God took them into the Babylonian captivity, and he said, you owe me 70 years, because for a period of 490 years, you didn't take every seventh year off. You owe me 70 years out of that 490, and so that's the length of your captivity. I'm going to let the land lie fallow while you hang out in Babylon for a while. And so it was meant to be a testimony. It was meant to be wonderful. It was meant to be something that preached about this God. Jesus had all this in mind when he commented, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it isn't about the rules and regulations that man has to keep. God said, this is for you. It's to show you how much I love you. It's to show the world how much I love the people of the world. It was meant to be a blessing, not the burden the Jews turned it into with all of their prohibitions. It was meant to emphasize love. And so verse three, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Jews to this day still disagree on the scope of this prohibition. I'm suggesting that in context, it's positive. It's intended to call attention to God's presence among them. Now we're gonna skip over verses four through 29, not because they are a repeat, but because we already commented on them in a previous study. We jumped ahead. In them, the Israelites were told that all who had willing hearts should contribute to the items needed for the building of the tabernacle. They did so over abundantly. They had to be asked to stop giving. I thought for a minute about doing that this morning. Just wait until the ushers got about halfway down and say, stop, stop giving, there's enough. That's never gonna happen in a church, but anyway. (laughs) You'd be lucky we're not taking another offering. But anyway, uh, no, you know, I'm just kidding, sort of. Let's skip over the rest of my comments on giving, which should be willing, regular, cheerful, and sacrificial. Anyway, uh, verse 30. (laughs) Verse 30. Moses said to the children of Israel, see, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work all manner of artistic workmanship. We've talked about Bezalel before. His name has come up. We've noted his calling and his filling with the Spirit of God and his gifting by God. What strikes us today about him is that the workman is simultaneously God's workmanship. God sees this saved man and calls him to a specific service. It may or may not be something he or she has any familiarity with when God calls a person. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. God then fills that man or woman with his spirit. Spirit equips with whatever is needed. In the case of Bezalel, it was wisdom and understanding and the knowledge that is listed in these verses. 
That man, that woman, is therefore God's workmanship. He's shaping them and molding them and filling them and gifting them in order to do his work. In another place, God is compared to a potter molding and shaping us. Whatever the metaphor, we are God's workmanship. Now, in fact, that's a verse you recognize from Ephesians 2.10. Paul the Apostle says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Anytime this verse is mentioned, you're obligated to point out that the word rendered workmanship is the word from which we get our English word poem. I remember many, many times at Calvary Costa Mesa or at a different conference where Pastor Chuck Smith was speaking, this was a verse that he would refer to all of the time. And Chuck would always say the same thing about it. He would say, we are God's workmanship. And the Greek word for workmanship is, and then everybody in the audience would quietly say, poema. It was like a tradition. It was weird in, in that sense. But it's it just one of the things, you know, so, so we should do that here. So we are his workmanship, and the English word, uh, or the Greek word is poema. Oh, good job. Uh, it is poem, but it can refer to any creative work of art art, rather, excuse me. It's only used twice in the Bible. In this verse, we are his workmanship. And in Romans 1.20, where it refers to God's work of creating the universe. And so God says, I created the universe. And, and you know, the universe, we're in a fallen state, but it's still pretty spectacular, right? I mean, looking out to the stars and all the planets and all the things that are happening. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful world and, and it's a great universe. And then God says, and, and you are my workmanship. And then you realize that the universe only exists so that God could create man and have a place for him to hang out and have a relationship with him. And so you are the real workmanship that God was after and is after. And this universe that we live in now, it's going to change dramatically. It's going to be folded up like a garment. It's going to explode and burn, and God's going to create new heavens and a new earth. And you and I are going to survive that and awake in his likeness. And so this is an exciting verse. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, a new creature in Christ. When you're saved by grace through faith, you become an entirely new creation in Jesus. You're his newly created work of art. You're his poem, you're his painting, you're his song, you're his sculpture. He begins the work at salvation and continues it day by day, moment by moment, until you are completed. What comes to mind when you think of poetry? Haiku, sonnet, to me it's a limerick. Uh, not really too deep into poetry, but when it comes to us, it should be epic poem that incorporates all styles being written by the same person who spoke into existence the universe. Those of you familiar with uh, Tolkien's writing, The Lord of the Rings, one of the things that happens in the book that you notice is there's all kinds of styles of writing. There are songs and poems and epic poems and little sayings and there are riddles and there's narrative and there's everything you can imagine packed in. And then there are languages that he invented and by the time you're done reading it, you think it's true. You start looking for hobbits. Everything you see is a hobbit hole. I mean, it's fantastic. And yet that is nothing compared to what you are as the poem of God. He who spoke the universe into existence with a word, what kind of words do you think he's using to mold and shape and make you? It's a tremendous meditation. 
Let's move on, chapter 35, verse 34. Start looking at the construction of the tabernacle in which we are work fellows. Now the workmanship verse, Ephesians 2.10, goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So once saved, you walk a new course. It's a course that's been prepared beforehand by God. God has made ready, even before you were saved, a path for you to follow. What is that path? Well, it's to perform good works by depending upon his power. Salvation doesn't involve any works. It's all from God. But after you're saved, good works should characterize your daily life. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said something like, if you're saved by grace, then you're going to be changed by grace. And so there are things that happen as we walk with the Lord. In another verse, the Apostle Paul said, we are God's fellow workers. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 9. Can be translated co-laborers or as I have, work fellows. Let's stick with co-laborers for now because that, that is the easiest one to understand. Uh, there's some ongoing debate and disagreement among uh, language scholars as to whether or not we are individually co-laborers with God or corporately co-laborers for God. They're split on it, actually, 50-50, based on the verbs and the language and how it's used. It seems a case could be made for either or both. Since I am to be yielded to the Spirit who indwells me, I am a co-laborer with God. At the same time, since I'm a member of the household of faith, I'm a co-laborer with others. You and I are co-laborers for God. And so no reason why it can't mean both. Bezalel had co-laborers in his work for God, and one in particular is named in Exodus 35, 34. He has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. Aholiab was right up there with Bezalel. He was like-gifted and like-minded. It's a blessing to have others who are shoulder-to-shoulder with you serving the Lord, men and women who, as we like to say, are wings and not weights. That's a good little check to your spirit. Ask yourself as you're ministering for the Lord, am I a wing in this situation, helping others to move forward effortlessly? Or have I become a weight bearing down? Am I assisting or am I being assisted? It's just a good check. A big part of their work was to teach others the things the Lord had taught them. We recognize in this what we would call discipleship. The first Christians were told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them. Then they would go out and make disciples of all men. It doesn't seem like much of a plan, but the math is actually staggering. Supposing each of us led two people to Jesus in one year, each year, and they each led two people to Jesus per year. After two years, you would have an amazing six converts. But after 10 years, there'd be 2,046 new believers ready to lead others for Jesus. In the 20th year, there would be 1,048,576 new believers, over a million. The numbers then get awe-inspiring after that, almost incalculable. If the glass seems half empty, if it seems we are falling short, which it seems like in every article I read in a Christian magazine, you know, the church is failing, the gospel's not going out, what are we doing, that kind of a thing. And I'm not saying we can't always do a better job. But after Jesus ascended into heaven, think of it this way. He had 11 apostles who were included in the 120 gathered in the upper room waiting for the promise of the Spirit. Now, there probably were more than 120 believers on the earth. 
but let's stick with that small number for now. How many multiplied millions of believers have resulted from those original disciples? I mean, we look around now and think, you know, we're failing. Um, I'm not even sure that's true uh, because the Bible says that God has scattered people all over the world so that he might reach them with the message of his son. But regardless that we might be failing or not and people want to put us down for it, just think of the millions, maybe a billion or two billion people who've become Christians from this small group. The system works. All we need to do is share our faith and be a part of a congregation that is reaching out, making disciples of all men, one at a time, one person at a time, and this thing works. In verse 35, he has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen of the weaver, who does uh, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. Coming out of Egypt... After an ancestry of slavery, the Israelites had the skill to make bricks. And that's about it. Any other skills they may have had would have been rudimentary. Now, I'm going to suggest that they were really, really, really good brick makers. I mean, you know, if if you were in the market for a pallet of bricks, you'd go right for the Israeli bricks, straight out of Egypt. Now, here's the problem. Moses comes down from Sinai with the plans for the tabernacle. Not one brick is involved. None of them are going to make a brick. Instead, God entrusted a fortune in precious stones, metals, and minerals to be fashioned into the most beautiful tabernacle ever built to brickmakers and housewives. God takes risks. I mean, think about it. Remember Charlton Heston in that one scene where he's making bricks? He's, you know, in the mud and they're pouring more mud in. He's trying to make bricks without straw and stuff. He didn't go home at night after his brick making, take a shower and say, honey, where's the hope diamond that I've been working on? Uh, I, need to, I need to carve that thing up or, or, hey, let's work on that beautiful tapestry. And none of that stuff was happening. All they do is make bricks and God said, you brick makers... You centuries-old brickmakers, brickmaker and son, Friedberg and son, brickmakers, you guys are now going to do every imaginable kind of art and craft that there is. God takes risks. In his book, The Case for Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, the happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth, it's mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it was worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, that is, for making a real world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen, instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls strings, then we may take it is worth it. And so God takes risks. And you know what? You are one of them. He's entrusted the gospel to you. Now, that, does that scare you? It should scare you a little bit because we just talked about how the only way that the gospel goes on is by us sharing our faith and people getting saved and them sharing their faith. And so God says here, this, my son died and rose from the dead. This is the only way of salvation. I'm entrusting it to you. God 
the angels could do a much better job of preaching. No, no, you don't get it. I've entrusted it to you. Somehow, as lame as we are, he uses us to share about his son. What else has God entrusted to you, or who else? It's his risky business to have you participate with him. You'll need him to give you the skill you need to work according to his word and his will. You should feel inadequate. Think of all the workers God called in the Bible, and most of them testified of their inadequacies. Jeremiah is one. At his calling, he said, Lord, behold, I cannot speak. I am but a youth. Moses himself expressed several concerns about his calling at the burning bush. He said in chapter 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In chapter 4, verse 1, he said, suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice, and they say the Lord has not appeared to you. In verse 10 of chapter 4, Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since. You've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And then finally in chapter 4, verse 13, he said, Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So he had three excuses, and then he said, I'm not going to do it. Those of you who've have ever interviewed somebody, and you know, forget the interview, you want to promote somebody, bring them into the office. I've got this promotion for you. Yeah, I don't want to do it. Well, no, you don't understand. It's more money and it's more responsibility. Find somebody else. I'm not going to do it. How did that interview go? I think, it's, I think he's going to be great. I think he's going to do a great job. He has just the right attitude. What was that attitude? That he doesn't want to do it at all. And so you understand? God, God's looking at Moses, and we're looking at Moses and thinking, yeah, find somebody else. There's got to be somebody else who maybe actually wants to do this, has a heart for it. Ah, but that's the key. God knew Moses' heart. He knew he had a heart for it. Moses didn't know that yet. And so we defer to God. He was the poster child for feeling inadequate. Not the guy you'd want to entrust with the next major event in redemption history. But he was God's pick. He was God's co-laborer. Exactly how God fills you with his skill is his business. With Moses, part of it was in his personal history. Bible teachers like to point out that his 40 years in Egypt, followed by 40 years herding sheep in the wilderness, suited him perfectly for leading God's flock out of Egypt and into the wilderness. But Jeremiah, who I mentioned as a young man, had no such preparation. God simply empowered him with the Holy Spirit. And so when God calls you, it might be that there's a flow where you can say, oh, now I see how God was preparing me. Or you might think God is preparing you a certain way and he says, yeah, no, that's not what I have for you at all. Quit thinking that. Paul the Apostle comes to mind. He was easily the most qualified individual to take the gospel to the Jews. He said of himself, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. What Jew wouldn't listen to him preach the gospel, and yet he is the Gentile apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles? It's all backwards because God sees the heart and he knows what he's doing. Think of all the young men God used in the Bible who, because of their age, we would automatically pass over. We already mentioned Jeremiah. David was a youth when he faced Goliath. In fact, he was passed over when they came to anoint the next king. All of his brothers stood in line from age, uh, in age rank, and David was out in the field because they had no idea that he could possibly be the king. Daniel and his three friends were mid-teenaged when God began using them. 
Joseph, just a young man when he had to avoid the temptations of Potiphar's wife and navigate things in an Egyptian prison. God doesn't just think outside the box, he sees inside the heart. If he has tapped you for work you feel inadequate for, trust him. And here's a thought, if you feel adequate, you better get over that right now. When you come to God and say, God, I'm ready. I've studied and I've prayed and I've, you know, done everything. You, you, you can't miss with me. And I'll tell you right now, God's going to find somebody else or you're going to be frustrated. God doesn't need your adequacies. He just needs you and he'll work with you. Let's skip down to chapter 39, verse 42, because everything else is repetition up to then. The verses leading up to this talk about the finishing of the tabernacle and what a great thing that was. But in verse 42, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. They'd come a long way in a short time from unremarkable slaves in Egypt to a nation ruled by God, unique on the face of the earth. Transformation is a word that comes to mind. They were transformed and they were being transformed by the grace of God while others looked on. Verse 43, then Moses looked over all the work and indeed they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. Final inspections are always a tense time. It seems like the inspector always finds something out of place. Uh, I remember we, we had a house built up in the mountains many years ago. It sounds more grand than it is. Uh, it was a little tiny uh, kind of tracked home, but we had a lot there that cost us. When we bought it, it was either $4,000 or you could trade a small pickup truck for it. <laughs> so that, that was real estate at the time. And uh, so we had this house built and we didn't realize it because we're not builders, but at the last minute, our builder, who I used to meet mostly in the Golden Elk Bar, uh, <laughs> He decided, it was a sloping hillside lot, he decided to move it 10 feet farther down the lot to take advantage of the view, but he never submitted the plans for that position, and so the county kept coming out and, and saying, yeah, we can't approve this. It turned out the only problem was they needed to build a landing for the electric meter, uh, but literally, he was a drunk, I didn't know this, and uh, I would engage him at the Golden Elk, and he would promise me he'd get it done, and then he wouldn't. And it went on for like nine months and stuff. And so final inspection was hard to get. So these final inspections, they're rough. But here, with, and you remember all the detail if you've been here for any of the studies when we talked about the Ark of the Covenant or the Mercy Seed or any of the other furnishings, or I can't even follow how to put together the tent poles and all of the curtains and all. And so God sent Moses to do an inspection and everything was done perfectly. One uh, commentator called it outrageous obedience. Would to God that we would be guilty of outrageous obedience. You know, God leaves the light on. His current dwelling place on earth is the church. And when we're described in the book of Revelation, he says we're a lampstand burning in the world. The light is on. It's you and I gathered together as the church of Jesus Christ. It's you and I individually out in the world. Lights for the Lord. Let's leave that light on and invite people with the greatest hospitality we can, spiritual hospitality, to know the living God.